Hi, I'm Charlie Bird. In the first episode of this podcast series, Ransom 79, I told you of this incredible story which has never been revealed before. An attempt to extort £5 million from the state back in 1979. The gang warned that if the money, which in today's equivalence is around €30 million, was not paid, they would introduce the deadly foot and mouth disease into the country. This incredible story has an uncanny resonance to the recent attempt by the Russian hackers to extort money from the HSE. The man who has brought this story to us is the former boss of the Garda Fraud Squad, Four Golds Willie McGee. We take up the story again in December 1979. Phone Conversation Christmas Eve 1979 At 2.55pm on Christmas Eve 1979, the switchboard operator in the Department of Agriculture saw an incoming call on the board. A male voice spoke and asked to be put through to the Minister's private secretary, Mr Cassidy. This was done. The conversation went as follows. Do you know anything about a notice in the Irish Times? I can't hear you. Do you know anything about a notice in the Irish Times? What is the difficulty, please? Who's speaking? Sorry, go ahead. Are you the writer of the letters? Yes. I'll tell you why I'm asking you. You see, we had three of them, and two of them were in a different format to the third. Did you write all three? The third was on a different typewriter, correct. Oh, and you see, as well as that, we weren't expecting another letter until January, because that's what one of the letters said. I'm only identifying what you know. I know what I'm doing, yes. That we know that you are the person. Can you be brief, please? Yes. You see, our main difficulty... Well, we have two difficulties... But the main one is the diplomatic passport. I thought so. That's all right. You can erase that. In other words, no passport. It doesn't matter. OK. Well, the second difficulty, I think we can overcome this one, is the car. There is a lot of trouble. And it's a very awkward arrangement. But look here, we might manage that one all right. But the main thing is the currency, then. See, this foreign currency creates a problem for us. Not very much of a problem, I should think. Well, it does, because, you see, the with the new European monetary system currency controls, the German marks are going to be a devil to get. Well, we have plenty of time. But you said in your letter early January, we can wait if necessary. Yes. And another thing... With all the denominations you mentioned uh, of the three groups, including the small Irish notes, there's going to be a hell of a load of currency to cart around. That's why I wanted them in Swiss francs and German marks. Yes, but you also asked in Irish currency. Do you know that? What's your extension number and your name? My extension is five here. There's an interruption on the line and a series of beeps. Did you cut me off? No. I'm calling from a phone box. The name is Cassidy, the minister's private secretary. Very well, Mr Cassidy. 
I will be in touch with you early in January. Early in January. Well, look, five is the extension of this room, but it's through that soap exchange you got through just now. Right. Goodbye. Goodbye. Can you recall <coughs> what you remember about how this phone call was set up and what happened? I did actually, yeah, because um, it, it, that, it was this was the the, the higher restaurants in the Gardaí had a meeting and they decided to uh, with the people from agriculture and they decided to, I wasn't part of those meetings at all because I was only a young detective, yeah. as I said earlier. And uh, this this was a hope of flushing them out and get them to talk to us. But they put special phone lines into the, the Department of Agriculture, Agriculture yes, that, uh, to tape conversations to see what was going that, that's, on. That's correct, yes. The, our, our technical section went ahead and met the people from Agriculture and set up the phone calls to be to be taped in, 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 in Agriculture, and that was usually done. And then, can you recall, because you know the story now, can you recall this famous conversation that happened on a Christmas Eve, wasn't that right, on Christmas Eve? I know that um, there was nobody working in the Department of Agriculture on Christmas Eve and um, eventually through the through the exchange a call was received by the Department of Agriculture by Mr Cassidy in the Department of Agriculture. Now Mr Cassidy, I'm going to reveal, we have interviewed him, he says Maybe you under, thought that he was the person who was going to take the phone call because he was the private secretary. And we'll be hearing his story in a little while. No, it's okay. We'll be hearing his story. Yeah, okay. But he says he thinks it was one of his bosses who actually had to sit in, 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 in the office and right. have the conversation with this member. And it's somebody from England, isn't that right? That's right. The, the Feltish was... Uh, um an international call maybe from the UK because of the different blips and beeps on the phone. They, they are in, 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 the, at the, in the exchange, didn't think it was a, it was a local call because of the, well, not the interference, but the, the noises in the background. Yeah. But Kevin Cassidy, the private secretary to the Minister for Agriculture, has his own recollections of that secret phone line being installed. So you didn't know about the exchange of um, communications between the extortionists and the department stroke government? No. The next thing I was aware of was something arose in the exchanges to indicate that there might be a telephone um, communication. Yeah. And that they would communicate through the private office. So how I became aware of that was I went in one morning and... I think it was a detective, it certainly wasn't, wasn't a, a telecom errand fella, was in introducing a line, a, a cable, between our switchboard in the minister's office. Uh, very cack-handed it was done. It was a, a, a live wire visible across the ceiling of the office, went through the, the door that people came in and out of. Are you serious? Yeah went across the corridor because the it happened that Mr. McKenna, that, that deputy secretary, his office was the, a direct door opposite mine on the, the, the fifth floor. And they did something then to link the, um, the line with his telephone. So the only thing then we were told was, if a call comes through from a Tom Smith, it's to be redirected immediately across to that line. My God. So 
I wouldn't, I didn't answer the phone. I mean, hundreds of phone calls a day came in. It was a child, there was a telephonist in, in the private office. So she would have been, you know, f- fielding the calls for all sorts of business, but she was the one who would have been told. And all the other girls who might have replaced her when she goes on a break, that Tom mm-hmm. Smith's calls were too. But they wouldn't have known or were told. The significance. No, uh, the significance of it. And we were told, or sorry, I was told that this was extremely confidential. And, you know, we were not to be talking about it. And to be honest, Charlie, until this you, this thing arose, I've never told my family about this. The first day I've heard about this was as a result <laughs> of your telephone call to me. I do remember, because I was unmarried at the time, I was living at home over in Dundrum. Um, I probably told my dad, because he was a great uh, confidant of mine and a bit of a mentor, and I would have had to tell somebody, but I'm, I'm sure, I can't swear to it, I'm sure I shared with them, you won't believe what's happened inside today, because it was bizarre. That's one way of describing it, bizarre. Mm. Uh, uh, basically a ransom or an extortion note to a government minister for the government to pay five million to prevent foot and mouth being spread around the country. Mm-hmm. You couldn't make this story no, up. couldn't, no. And just out of curiosity, so there would have been a change of minister. So in yeah, that's why I was interested in. The, I couldn't recall the timeline as I mentioned to you exactly when it started. I knew it had something to do with the end of the year because the, something happened towards Christmas time, but that that whole period was very significant for me and yeah. for the country. Yeah, tell us for about start, it. Well, for a start. We were all very busy government-wise, even though it you know, wasn't anything particularly to do with the department. But um, that September was the visit of JP to the Pope. And there was a big rigmarole about functions and ministers doing things and all the rest of it. And then also there was, I think, great disquiet in Fianna Fáil circles about what was going on between um, Jack Lynch and, and uh, Charlie, Charlie Hawley at the time. And that culminated on the 12th of December. I remember all this because I was the private secretary to Gibbons. He left the office literally at around 10 o'clock to go over to his office in the Dáil, um, where the Dáil was going to be in session and Charlie was was uh, being appointed or voted. Taoiseach. Taoiseach. And then his appointment of the government was fairly immediate after that. And Jim Gibbons never came back to the office. Never came back. He never came back physically to the department's office. He went, and that was the last I saw of him until literally a couple of months later I met him in the doll. And who was your new minister? The new minister then was um, Charlie Hoy appointed uh, Ray McSherry. Ray McSherry. That was his first full ministerial position. He had been a junior minister in... Um, I think it was the Department of the Public Service. Yeah, and he became the um, the new the new minister. Do you think that? Do you think he would have been told, informed about yeah, this? He would have been. Um, then again, there again, not by me. I have no memory of no, telling him. No. But the thing was ongoing. You know, the, yeah. the situation was ongoing, and whatever was going on behind the scenes between our side and these extortionists was was continuing. So he would have had to have been told about it. And then we moved to after Christmas, isn't that right? That's correct. We're, we're into 1980 now, in, into January. Yeah. So well, tell me about what happens in January 1980. 
Take your time. This, this letter was actually addressed to Mr. Cassidy because of the name that he had, the yeah. caller had received yeah. on, on the, from the phone call on December the 24th. And this, this letter was the first letter that was addressed to Mr. Cassidy. All the other letters were addressed to dear minister. Yeah. And in this letter, what they're saying is... Letter 3. Received 15th of January 1980. Dear Mr. Cassidy... Thank you for your reply in the Irish Times, Saturday, December the 22nd last. Also for remaining in your office on Christmas Eve to take my telephone call. Our requirements remain basically as we outlined in our last letter to you. However, we are prepared to go along with you when you say you are encountering difficulties producing a diplomatic passport. This is the only point we are prepared to give way. You are therefore required to comply exactly with each item we outlined in our last letter. The entire amount of money is to be packed into one leather case. The entire ransom is to be packed into one leather case. The car is to be prepared exactly as instructed. On Saturday, February 2nd, 1980, the prepared car is to be parked for our inspection in the set-down bay in front of the Gresham Hotel. It is to be parked there from 11am until 4pm. The case you intend using is to be placed on the front passenger seat. The driver is not to remain in the car. The money is to be ready by the end of February, by which time you will receive our instructions for delivering same. As you are no doubt aware, your request for discussions obliged one of us flying to London after your notice appeared in the paper. We are also certain you attempted to trace the call. We therefore do not intend having any further vocal communication with you. At this stage, we feel sure you are convinced of our determination and ability to do as we have outlined in our previous letters. So, please do exactly as we have requested you. Please reply in the Irish Times, Saturday, 19th of January, stating you have received this letter and your willingness to comply with our requirements. Tom Smith 19th of January, 1980 Tom Smith has read your proposals and will agree to your conditions. What they're saying is... They want the money packed a five million put into a leather case. That's and then they want a dry run, as it were, and they want a mini, a mini car, a mini 1000, isn't it? That's correct. This yeah, car yeah. is to be prepared exactly as instructed on Saturday, the 2nd of February, 1980. The car is to be parked in the front of the Gresham Hotel. They gave us a particular registration number to put on the car, and, and a white car, white Mini, and we sourced that Mini from a brother of a member of the Gardaí, actually, and uh, we had the particular requested number plate put on the car. These were English stripes. number plates, These yeah. were English number plates, yes, and there were, there were particular colour stripes as well on the rear of the car, on the front of the car. So we, detailed. We complied, we complied with their request and got a, an exact Mini togged out in, 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 with, the, with those particulars number-wise as well and we parked it in front of the Gresham as requested. 
And were you involved in that operation? I was indeed, yeah, because actually I had I had a mini, I had the use of a mini at the time. My sister, who had, was away on holidays, had parked her, her mini in, in my house and I used her mini because we wanted three small cars to park in front of the Gresham, in the, in the loading bay in front of the Gresham. Um, we, we wanted the cars to be small to be, so it could be parked closely together. And that was, that was a particular ploy. Um, I don't Tell know, me about that ploy. I don't know who came up with that idea, but we, we, we parked the minis, two, two other minis, um, very close to the one, the question mini, because um, if anybody had to come along on the day when it was requested to have the mini there, and they had to see the, the number plate or the stripes on the mini as requested, um, they would have to stand beside the mini and and look look down. Look so they have to make a real effort to look to, at the, to, to the registration, the, the strange right registration. Uh, that's the, the who are complying with their request to, uh, of the numbers and, 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 and the decoration of the mini as well. And Willie, did the mini have a, a, suit, a leather suitcase in the It had, it had the le- as requested in their letter. The, the leather case was placed in the front passenger seat of the Mini. So if anybody had to check the Mini to see was it was it in accordance with their, their request or their demand, uh, they'd have to stand beside the Mini, look into it, or maybe even go, go behind or in front of it to, to check the number plate because the, the, number, the cars were parked so closely together. But Willie, I want to be clear, there was no five million in cash in the suitcase. It was not, was no, it was just the case as it was. And, and another aside to that, just, just to, to conform with, with the legislation, the local guard who was working on the parking tickets, parking cars on you know, Collins Street, we asked him to put a ticket on each car, which he did. He put a parking ticket on each car just to make it look legitimate that this car was parked illegally. So if anybody had to check it, they'd see that there was a parking ticket on each of the three cars and that was done. And this was also the day of a rugby international, a busy Saturday and it was at Rugby International, I think, in Lansdowne Road, was there? That's, that's correct indeed, yeah. Uh, there was, and, and the O'Connor seat was fairly busy. Now, in order, in order to place the car there at the requested time, we had to set up surveillance of, of the Mini and its, and its surrounds. And we placed personnel in the Gresham, in the County Council office, directly across the road in, in um, O'Connor Street, and also at the corner of Cahill Brewer Street, I think it was a, a Post and Telegraph's office there we got the use of. So we could see the the cars outside the Gresham. And you were there all, all day, were you there? I was indeed, I, I was in the, in the, in the Carl Brewer Street um, corner and we had, we had video cameras as well as still cameras. Video cameras and, and still uh, cameras? Was, was and were you thing. operating those? I, I was operating those at, 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 uh, on, on the corner of Carl Brewer Street, yeah. So just let me, I want to pause for a second. So when you were there, you were watching the Mini, you were there all day doing it. Were you on your own and was there somebody with no, you? No, we had three or four people in, 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 uh, in each location. In each location? In each location, just in case some fellow would see some, something that who he, who he recognised, other, other people mightn't recognise him or, or, or a person. See if anything suspicious. Actually, eight eyes are always better than two uh, on an observation like that. And Willie says that on the day they did spot one unwelcome visitor. The famous day when the Mini was parked outside the Gresham. Gresham. You saw somebody else, didn't you, rather than the, the barrister. Tell me about that. Well, actually, amazing enough, um, we, have, we had a, a chief superintendent in, in the Garda headquarters who was a, a particular nosy individual, and um, he appeared outside the Gresham as well, having a look at the Mini. He, he, was, he wasn't involved in the operational 
in an operational capacity and an investigation at all. But he obviously became aware of it or was told the inside track on it. But he came along and to check in that the Mini was there apart and that the suitcase was in the front of it because he stopped and looked into the Mini as, as, as he passed by as well. And we, we videoed him and photographed him as well at that time. But um, he didn't question the chief superintendent. I, I was only a young guard. I, I didn't question the chief superintendent as to what he was doing there. But I brought it to the notice of my authorities that this man was there and he shouldn't have been there. But uh, it was part and parcel of that, this man's operational capacity anyway of, of, of being nosy and he could have ruined the whole lot on us. If he was, well, if he was a well-known chief superintendent, which he wasn't at the time, if he was well-known, he would have ruined the, the whole operation on us by... by by turning up turning outside, the outside the Gresham. That's correct, yeah. But I suppose you have those in, in every in every walk of life. So, Willie, to be clear, I mean, on that day alone, because some people might be saying this is all just made up, this is madness, but you're saying on that Saturday there was a lot of undercover policemen all over O'Connell Street in the hotel, in the county council office and in the place where you were in the Post and Telegraph. What, maybe 15, 20 of you? Yeah, right? we're all there by arrangement, actually, yeah, sure. And um, before I move on, had you ever, at that stage in your career, ever been involved in an operation like this? Not, not, not uh, to this extent. I was often uh, involved in operations of surveillance, all right, where we'd, where we'd sit and watch some place at different times, yes. But this one was, was, was different. It was a major operation. Willie, also, because I'm now coming to a point in the story where you're going to reveal at least one thing for us. In your career, even when you left the guards and up to then, had you ever... I mean, this is like something out of a, a movie. This whole story is so bizarre, it's so strange, it's so incredible, isn't it? It is actually, it says no doubt about it, and, and it was unfolding in that direction as, as we progressed. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again, and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones. Make friends with innovation. Your free travel card can be used on all expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age. Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. To subscribe to Senior Times, visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash senior times. And of course, in 2001, we had an outbreak of foot and mouth disease in the country, which cost the state half a billion euros. And this is how RTE News reported the outbreak at the time. After confirmation of the suspected case of foot and mouth in Armagh, Minister Joe Walsh banned the movement of all animals in the eight-mile exclusion zone, which straddles the border. In the south, we banned the movement of cattle, sheep, pigs and deer, except to slaughterhouses. 
The minister has recommended the cancellation of all sporting events unless adequate disinfection facilities are provided. He also wants all hunting, fishing and hill walking near farmland to be stopped as well as the closure of national parks. It is extremely worrying and disquieting that there's a suspect case and the exclusion zone actually straddles the border and it means that every single citizen in the country, again, we want to emphasise that we're all in this thing together and that they take ultra precautionary measures to keep this dreaded plague out of the country. And even the Patrick's Day parade in 2001 had to be postponed. It's the biggest street party of the year, drawing hundreds of thousands of visitors into the city. But this St. Patrick's Day, the costumes will be remaining in storage. There's only like a couple of little things to finish off, like hats for the kiddies that are in it and a couple of masks, the masks that we have here. For this theatre company, St. Patrick's Day is the focus of their year. After the Patrick's Day, the television coverage and the phone starts ringing and for the rest of the summer then we kept going. This year, it's not going to happen like that, you know. It was the news the Doyle never wanted to hear, but as a somber Taoiseach rose to his feet, deputies knew their worst fears were about to be realised. The samples taken from sheep in County Lyle had proved positive. This is a major disappointment given the intensity of the efforts by all sectors of society to keep the disease out of Ireland. So I've travelled out to meet my old pal and good friend Joe O'Brien, who was RTE's agricultural correspondent in 2001 during the foot and mouth outbreak. So you are agricultural correspondent. First of all, if somebody had come to you and said, somebody's going to spread foot and mouth deliberately to the whole country, what would, you, how, what would your journalistic reaction be to it? Well, uh, foot and mouth has been described before whenever, whenever there was an outbreak as, as a plague. A and plague? A, a plague. And uh, in 2001, when there was an outbreak in Ireland, one of the headlines in the newspapers said that the outbreak on the island of Ireland, the first outbreak, was indeed a plague. But um, it would have had catastrophic uh, impacts on Ireland, both on the economy, on agricultural output, and on individual farmers, and on society as a whole. And uh, I know in the 1970s there was a lot of subver subversive activity in the 1970s, and uh, people were being kidnapped, and ransoms were being asked uh, very frequently for people who had been kidnapped in different situations. And generally the government policy was never pay a ransom. Now, there may be one or two kidnaps where money was paid, but the government never wanted to do it. But here in 79, and what's amazing about this story, Joe, is have you ever heard of this story? That somebody threatened to spread foot and mouth and that they tried to extort large amounts of money from the state? Well, I worked with the Gardaí on various stories and quite close for two or three decades. Never heard a word of it, Charlie. It would have been, a, had it happened in Ireland, as I said, it would have been catastrophic. Yeah, so what's amazing about this story, Joe, is that it's been kept under wraps for so long. And at the time, in 1979, it never leaked into the media. It never leaked into security circles, even apparently within the guards, the officers who were dealing with it. It was all kept tightly under wraps. They did not want it to leak out. But you, you dealt with foot and mouth in 2001. Tell me the effect it had in the country. I mean, you as a reporter working every day on this story, just give me your own feeling about 
the effect it had? Well, in many ways it was a dress rehearsal for the kind of lockdown we have, we've had for the last 15 months. Nearly all of social life was locked down. I mean, I have a big list here of things that were cancelled. Um, Cheltenham was cancelled. Uh, rugby internationals were cancelled. All GAA fixtures, indeed all sporting events were cancelled. There was restrictions on, on the movement of animals. Marts were closed. Um, nearly every public meeting was cancelled. The St. Patrick's Day parades were cancelled all over the country now. Are you it serious? was deferred, yeah. Uh, My God. It was held in May instead of of, of Because, of the, of, because the of the foot and mouth. And um, the whole country was mobilised because farmers were terrified um, that it would come to the country and it could wipe out um, thousands. An estimated nearly 20,000 jobs could have been lost in various industries, particularly the tourist industry, as well as farmers could have lost their livelihoods. And it was estimated in 2001 that had the restrictions not been put in place, it would have cost this country 5.6 billion euro. Colossal money. 5.6 billion. So that is the scale of what we're talking about, what these people were threatening back in 1979. Yeah, that's the scale of it. Now, we're used to dealing with billions now because of the COVID, uh, COVID pandemic, but this would have been huge, huge money. Plus the, the social distress it would have caused and the anxiety for farmers, for farmers and plus farmers at the time, when, when the outbreak of foot and mouth occurred south of the border. It happened in a place called a village called Pro Leak in County Louth. And it was on the Cooley Peninsula. I remember the Cooley Peninsula. Thousands and thousands of animals had to be uh, put down. And farmers cried on television. They wept. They said there was nothing as you know as sad to see the animals that they had helped into this world to be put down, little lambs, calves, deer had to be shot by the army. Um, goats had to be put down. I mean, you and I did the program from Cooley after the after the outbreak of foot and mouth when it was all over, and there was hardly an animal to be seen. It was a it was like a scorched earth, uh, all that area of County Louth at the time. And what about security at the time? Did they lock the border down? Were they doing things like that? Well, about a thousand. Uh, members of the Gardaí and army personnel were deployed up along the border because part of the story was that there was illegal movement of animals and uh, foot and mouth would have been spread by the movement of animals uh, uh, would, uh, would have spread it like wildfire so Gardaí had the border practically sealed off and the, the, the guards and the uh, in particular were also employed in various parts of the country you know when the outbreak happened in Britain, uh, the first outbreak on the, say, the 19th of February. So Ireland immediately brought in this whole raft of restrictions. And it was another, say, um, four weeks yeah. before it eventually came to Ireland. But the whole country was in this lockdown and you had this waiting period. But you had this scare all over the country. There was uh, potential outbreaks and people, you know, and it hopped from county to county and people were wondering, is it in our county, is it in our area, in our village? And then there was a whole lot of false negatives and the samples had to be sent over to England to a place called uh, Purbright. There were specialist laboratories there to test it out. But you had this fear and this anticipation and this air of gloom all around the country that it could descend on the country at, at any moment and thousands of jobs would be gone and uh, livelihoods were put at risk. Apparently in 67 there was another foot and 
I remember that. I was a young 12-year-old at the time. And you actually remember I it? I do, yeah. I remember the foot-dipping dipping element. It's one of the elements that you might remember in 2001, where oh, yeah. all your feet, every building you went into, not just government buildings, but as part of the huge... Um, you know, public awareness and public uh, cooperation with the authorities. There were these, you had to dip your foot in disinfectant and um, every building you went into and every building you left, that that was a routine that had to happen. And also, if my memory serves me right, if you were coming through the airport, did you have checks that, yeah, and you, that had you weren't to bringing in food, food and you uh, yeah. had to dip your feet as well. And the other thing, my memory of that foot foot and mouth outbreak in 1967 I had a brother and sister living in England at the time my brother had only just gone over in uh, the autumn of 1967 and they couldn't come home now they were advised not to come home there was a public um, advisory put out as it were but effectively it was a government this is like don't come home this is like Covid oh yeah as I say it was a precursor a forerunner of Covid good God so people were being don't come home, stay to save the country. Yeah, and um, agriculture I mean, is hugely important and uh, the food industry is hugely important to the Irish economy there today, but it was even much more so in the 1970s yeah. and there were far more farmers on the land at the time, so uh, the impact of it would have been massive. Joe, I'm just, put yourself in this position. If somebody had told you when you were a reporter in RTE that behind the scenes somebody was trying to extort millions from the government how would you have reacted as a journalist as a journalist I don't you try to get under the story as best you could you would deal with your farm contacts with your Garda contacts your army contacts but you would have been flabbergasted you would have been what effectively what you do you would go to the most senior people in RTE and alert them that there was this massive story out there that had to be cracked and um, you, you would deploy the whole resources, not just of the newsroom, but of the station, to get under it and to put it out. But I'm telling you now today, as we sit here under this sort of now not bad blue sky coming into the beginning of summer, hopefully the pandemic is coming to an end. But that, back in 1979, it went on for months behind the scenes. The extortionists sent letters to the Minister for Agriculture, the Department of Agriculture, and they had to respond by putting notices in the back of the Irish Times, social and personal. They were, that's how they were dealing with the extortionists behind the scene, using the, the pages of the Irish Times well, to I deal with it. I remember 1979, there was an awful lot going on in 1979. Uh, Lord Mountbatten uh, was killed off the coast of Sligo. You had all those soldiers killed up on the other side of the yeah, border right, of yeah. Mouth. And it was also the time of the Pope's visit. So, and it was a time when there was a lot of subversion going on. So there was an awful lot happening. But even by all that standard, with all of that which was going on, this would have been a huge story, a massive story. And yet... It never emerged, but it was going on behind the scenes. Well, a lot of people have sat on it now for the last couple of decades, and it's amazing that it's coming out now. So back to Willie McGee. On that Saturday that they were watching the mini outside the Gresham Hotel, he spotted something very interesting. So on that day, one of the clues, you saw somebody coming up to the mini. Tell me about that. Actually, the amazing thing about it was that uh, um, 
the people in the Gresham or the people in the county council office didn't recognise one particular person and I, I particularly took notice myself <coughs> excuse me and um, I identified a barrister who, who was the junior counsel at the time um, taking particular notice of the mini. Now, I don't know whether it was just by pure accident or not, but it, was, it looked to me as it was more by design than accident. A barrister? A barrister. A junior barrister. A junior barrister. And you recognised yeah, him? I recognised him straight away. And uh, I actually took photographs of him uh, standing at the mini so just for, for... The record? For the record, yeah. Are we shocked? Were you surprised? I was amazed actually because uh, nobody else, none of the lads that were on the observation point with me knew him, or nobody reported him being there from the other right. sides as well. Yeah. So he wasn't. He, 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 I, I obviously knew him because I was. At, I would be uh, in court fairly often in those days, and uh, I knew him very well from the court. I had dealings with him. You must have been shocked, were you? I was actually. I was amazed uh, to see him being there. Yeah. So. We're going to jump a little bit ahead because eventually you thought, somebody told you afterwards that this junior barrister was seen going into a house where? Tell me about that element uh, of that. He was seen now. going into a house in Carlow of the, the house that belonged to the main suspect in this particular case. So that put one and one together to make two in our, in our situation. And I reported that as a debrief for of the of the observation of the, the mini on that particular day on Saturday, and uh, I was informed during that debrief that this barrister was seen going into the suspect's house in County Carlow. So that 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 put him into the framework straight away. And the suspect in County Carlow was a former member of the terrorist group Sarah. That, that's correct. Yeah, indeed. So would you have thought then, sorry, the letters which we've got up until now all talk about a five-person gang, I presume all men, but who knows, yeah, a five-person yeah, gang. Exactly, yeah. Do you think that whoever was behind these series of letters which are coming, now you have told me that you had fingerprints, experts, and what did they tell you about the writer of the letter? They actually... Um we, we had a, a psychoanalyst who, my, my sergeant, Matt Madigan, actually um, came up with a, a man from UCD. Again, this was all in hearsay to me. I, I actually didn't yeah. meet him or see him or interview him or yeah. talk to him. But um, he read the letters and he psychoanalyzed them and he came up with, the, with um, a report that the, the writer of the letters had gone to a particular school between 1965 and 1970. Uh, a fee-paying school in the country. Are you serious? That's uh, how detailed they felt. That's how detailed that the analysts came back with the report. And uh, when it was examined further, the junior barrister that I saw and identified at the car outside the Gresham actually attended that school in, in those years. So that would put him into the picture straight away of being a, main, a major suspect in the case of, was, did he write those letters? My God. Then on the 6th of February, another letter arrived from the extortion gang with a very strange and polite introduction. Letter 4. Posted 6th of February 1980. Dear Mr Cassidy, Thank you for displaying the car as requested outside the Gresham Hotel on Saturday, February 2nd you will receive one week's notice of the date on which we require the money to be paid. 
On the date that we require the money to be paid, at 4pm, the prepared car will once again park outside the Gresham Hotel. At 4.20pm, the car will leave and proceed along O'Connell Street via College Green, James Street, to Newlands Cross. It will then park on the lay-by at the entrance to the Dublin Nace dual carriageway. It will remain there until exactly 5pm. At 5pm, it will proceed in the direction of Nace and continue through Nace, Kilcullen, Athai, Castle Comer, Kilkenny, Waterford, New Ross, Enniscorthy, Arklow, Wicklow, Bray and finally back to Dublin. It will be necessary for the car to maintain a regular speed of 45 miles per hour on the open road and observe the speed limits in built-up areas. It is imperative that the car does not exceed 45 miles per hour, but nevertheless travels as close as possible to this speed. Since the Mini will not have sufficient fuel to complete the round trip, it will be necessary to carry two 10-litre containers of fuel to avoid having to stop at a garage to refuel. The car will stop as it approaches the bridge at New Ross and the driver will refill the car's tank from his two containers. It will be necessary for the driver to make adequate provision in order to avoid having to stop en route to either eat or go to the toilet. The car may not be fitted with any radio transmitting or receiving equipment and if this instruction is not carried out, we will call off the arrangements since it is easy to detect such equipment. Needless to say, there should be no attempt by police or special branch officers to follow the car containing the money or an attempt made to intercept the pickup vehicle. In the event of these instructions not being carried out and it becoming obvious to us that the Mini is being tailed, then the arrangement will be called off. If we are forced to do this, you will receive seven days' notice to have deposited the sum of £10 million in a bank in a foreign country that has neither sympathy nor extradition agreement with Ireland. If, at the end of the seven days, the money has not been deposited, we will then carry out our threat and send copies of all our letters to you to the national newspapers. We trust this will not be necessary. Please reply in the Irish Times on Saturday, February 9th, acknowledging receipt of this letter and accepting our proposals. Yours, Tom Smith. On this occasion, the Gardaí were not acceding to all the gang's requests. 9th of February, 1980. No driver will undertake journey. Can we negotiate more reasonable agreements? Tom Smith. Why did you put that in? What, what was going on there? Can you tell me what was going on? Well, I suppose having ta having been taken so seriously, um, it was it was um, very obvious that the people from the agriculture and and the Gardaí who met and at conferences decided that it'd be hard to get even a member of the Gardaí to take to drive that car if if they wanted if they wanted the money that badly and the money being in the suitcase. Uh, there would be a shootout, so therefore, um, it'd be hard. Uh, some member of the Gardaí would have to, to um, 
drive that car and nobody from agriculture actually would drive it but um, that's why they decided to, to place that ad and, and lure them out again and see what the, would they say in relation to it. It was really, this where it really entered the cat and mouse game between, between these people and ourselves. And within days, the gang responded again. But this time, they were not very pleased. Letter 5. Received 12th of February 1980. Dear Mr Cassidy, Thank you for your reply in the Irish Times, Saturday, 9th of February. We cannot and will not accept your suggestion of changing our instructions. If you really intend paying the money without attempting to discover our identity, we can see no reason for failing to obtain a driver to undertake the route demanded. In fact, we have observed yourself and see no reason why you could not drive the car. Please let it be clear that we are fully determined at this stage to obtain the money. Let us point out that these correspondences have been going on since last September. By this time, you should be convinced of our determination. We require the money to be paid before the 15th of March. You will receive seven days' notice of when the money is to be paid. If you refuse to comply with the instructions in our last letter, we will start an outbreak of this disease immediately. So, we would like you to confirm in next Saturday's Irish Times, February the 16th, 1980, that you can and will meet our demands as stated in our last letter. We are not prepared to negotiate or yield in any way whatsoever. Tom Smith So we are now in the final weeks of this incredible drama. Join us for part three, where we will meet the man who did drive the white minicar. And incredibly, the undercover detective tells us how he had to stuff a lady's revolver down his underwear. Ransom 79 is a Senior Times production created and presented by Charlie Bird and produced by Connor O'Hagan.